Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 130 of the podcast for October 13th, 2011. My guest today is Gregory A. Howell. He's the co-founder and managing director of the Lean Construction Institute, or LCI, a nonprofit organization devoted to production management research in design and construction. Howell brings 35 years of construction industry project management, consulting, and university-level teaching experience to LCI. So today we're going to be talking about lean construction. Um, Greg's going to give us an overview of that and uh, how the, what the parallels are, what the lessons learned are from generalized lean thinking and how that's being applied to the more um, efficient design and construction of buildings in all sorts of industries. So as always, um, thanks for listening. Well, I guess today, Greg Howell, thanks for taking time to talk on the podcast. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you very much. Sure. So can you start by introducing yourself for the listeners and, and telling us about your background, please? Sure. Um, I'm a civil engineer by, by background. I went to Stanford in the early 60s, and then I went there again in the 70s and uh, received my master's degree there. And that's what where I really got connected into looking at work and thinking about issues of productivity and improvement. And you've always been involved in construction, or can you talk a little bit about some of your career path within uh, the construction field? Oh, it's a crazy uh, career path. I, after I graduated as an undergraduate, I uh, went straight into the Navy in the Civil Engineer Corps. I served uh, about four, four and a half years in the Civil Engineer Corps. I was in the Seabees uh, for two years, and I served as an aide and admiral for a couple of years in San Diego. And then after that, I went back to graduate school. I worked for an architect for a few years, uh, did some surveying in Arizona where I grew up. Um, uh, eventually went back to graduate school, worked back in construction in New Jersey for a couple of construction that, uh, firms there for three years. It's the least explainable period of my life. <laughs> and uh, and then I returned to uh, California, and I was trying to find trying to find some work in the area of productivity improvement, and I was unable to do that. Um, went back to Professor Parker at Stanford and said, I can't do what you taught me, and he suggested I go down to time-lapse, which would made photographic equipment for productivity improvement. And that led me into a kind of uh, manufacturing and consulting career where I travel all over the, the world uh, trying to fix productivity problems on projects. And one of the, the small, an odd thing happened in that. I'd go out and, and occasionally, maybe one time out of ten, I'd work on a project and I would improve the productivity of the operation under study and it would make the project worse. What, 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 what would lead to that, do you think? Uh, well, it, I had no idea and it was, it was <laughs> yeah. confusing, disturbing, and career limiting. Uh, I knew that uh, uh, I, I couldn't figure it out and I got an opportunity then about that same time I couldn't see, I mean, it just was troubling. And I, I received a, an offer to go to the University of New Mexico as a visiting professor for a year, and I ended up spending 10 years on the faculty there and finally left that, uh, what, about 1995, I guess, and um, um, moved up here to Idaho. And that's, that's about the time lean construction really began to take off. Yeah. Um, I'll touch on that, on why that, uh, that anomaly a little later probably in the interview might be yeah. easier. Sure. Um, so can you introduce the idea, I mean, for people who aren't familiar, and I, I wouldn't claim to know too much about it either, um, lean construction. You know, what, uh, what is lean construction? How did lean 
um, get pulled into or get brought into you know building and construction? Kind of in a crazy way. Um, the, remember, that I came out of the productivity improvement me, movement, uh, and that was focused on improving the productivity of crews within each activity. That was built on the model of traditional uh, project management. 1979, I meet Glenn Ballard on a uh, project in Texas. He and I become friends. Uh, uh, Glenn co-founded LCI with me. He's a brilliant guy, went to St. John's, can mobilize Aristotle. Um, you know, really uh, a tremendous thinker. And uh, Glenn and I stayed friends after that productivity improvement period. That was, um, and eventually in the mid-'80s, he gets a job writing a manual for foreman planning. It's an old idea that if foreman made better assignments, they'd be, their crews would be more productive. And so um, we talked about that. I had written some uh, material for the Associated General Contractors of America and their supervisory training program that were along that lines. And um, so we couldn't think of anything new to say. And so Glenn decided to go out and measure how well planning system performance, planning systems actually worked. And he, we took as our measure the ability of the weekly work plan prepared by the foreman to predict the condition of the job one week in advance. And we'd ask the foreman what they're going to do next week, no kidding, or something like that. And then we would come back at the end of the week and see did they get what they said they were going to do done or not done. And we broke that down by, I'll say, line items in the assignment. If there were 10 activities on the, 10 tasks on the assignment, we'd ask on each one, was it done or not done? And we didn't give partial credit. Uh, for some other reasons, we could talk about that later. But, but the answer was 54% of the t- tasks that foreman said they were going to get done next week, they actually got got done. Hmm. And and much of that was due to the fact that the materials and things necessary to do that work weren't at hand when the foreman made the assignment. And in most cases, they knew it wasn't available. And so we said, if you want to make better assignments, quit making bad assignments. And um, and just say no. And just say no um, uh, was a radical act. Uh, officer in the CBs can do is my motto. Uh, the idea that a foreman would say no was uh, was a shocking idea. And and um, but saying no reminded us of what we had come to understand about Engineer Ono's rule about stopping a line rather than releasing a defective part downstream. And and. And once we made this connection, we kind of, it opened the door to us of the larger lean, uh, 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 book of knowledge. It opened, and, and it, and it explained to us, everybody says projects are different than manufacturing. Uh, yes, and one important way they're different is the way work moves. In manufacturing, it moves because of the way you design the line. In projects, it moves because of the administrative act of making an assignment. Now, it isn't precisely true in either case, but it's it's good enough for, for us to go to work. And so once we understood that, then we began to shift our focus from managing the productivity of each activity to how do we manage the flow of work. Uh, three things came together all at once. Uh, Professor Koskala from Finland said, our models of construction are activity-centered. Uh, uh, we read Goldratt's book, uh, 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 The Goal it Brings Up the Combined Effects of Dependence and Uncertainty on System Performance, and we have this data on the unpredictable flow of work on projects. And so the first, op- so the first thing we created then was the pl- last planner system, which was designed to produce predictable workflow on sites. It's not perfect. But it does, it, we can see planning performance and 
improve very dramatically on projects when that system is used. The next that opened the next door, and and that we noticed then on projects that were using the last planner system that contractors, particularly mechanical contractors, began to make larger sub-assemblies and carry them out to site. And and as the superintendent said, how can you do things just in time if you don't know what time it is? <laughs> and so, so but yeah. when you, if you do know what time it is, there's no reason to bring out a bunch of little pieces. You can bring out a big piece that you made more efficiently in the shop and put it in place. Yeah. And and that was that was that. So I'd say the second opportunity that was created here was was a project. We began to understand projects as production systems. Was was part of the evolution there, changing the focus from you're talking about you know trying to manage the work of workers, and, and I think back maybe to Frederick Taylor who would be looking at how people were doing very detailed little tasks and jobs, and, and instead of looking back at the entire flow of the whole project, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and 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 hidden in what you said, or almost is. In current practice, what would happen, and certainly out of Taylorism and those those kinds of things, you are always focused on maximizing the productivity at that person or that point or that crew. And we realized very quickly, uh, the goal led us to that, that what we were trying to do is maximize performance of the project and not the piece. Uh, if you and, and what had happened to me earlier was there were times when I would optimize the the, the piece, if you will, and I would reduce the predictability of workflow between the crews, and that would make the project worse. That's how that that's how that anomaly was happening. But I was blind to that. I was blind to that because workflow was irrelevant. Once it became relevant, you know that that was that was really the the, the kind of breakthrough moment was was when that happened. Now this happened. This is happening in similar ways around the world. It isn't, you know, Glenn and I started LCI. There was another kind of development in Northern Europe. The first international group for lean construction met in 19 years ago. We just had our 19th annual meeting in, in uh, Peru. And uh, that, that first meeting, it was attended by five people. And uh, the second one was in Santiago. And uh, that was more the, the one in Lima uh, two, three weeks ago. We had an industry day beforehand. We normally have 50 people or 80 people come to the industry day. We had just about 500. And so there's a sense of it really uh, taking off. And so, I mean, looking at the high level um, in terms of some of the main practices that are different, if, if someone's practicing lean construction, what are some of those practices and, and what are some of the results that you would typically see in, in the construction of a typical type of building or use an example maybe? Yeah, I think there's there's. Uh, let me touch it this way. I propose that all projects have uh, commercial terms. They always have a contract. They always have organizational practices, and they have, I'll call it an operating system. We're we've changed the operating system of project management one from activity center to flow. All right, now the practices then that I'm talking about are primarily in that operating system. Uh, there are there are there are parallel developments in contractual forms to optimize the project, and parallel developments in collaborative organizations. And so, but let's just stick on the operating system. And there, what happens is the first thing is we we try to focus on creating predictable workflow right at the work face. Um, and then that leads us into production system design. That's sort of an infinitely improvable area. Uh, uh, and that leads us into doing much more collaborative planning. And so in, within that, 
within that uh, uh, last planner system, you see a a big rebalancing of authority, a shift from highly central control to more balanced authority and, and distributed decision making. Once you have once you have that planning system around, then you can begin to use ideas like pull, advancing uh, one piece flow. Uh, you begin to get very sensitive to the issues of quality and handoff, so you don't have to do rework. Uh, you'll see projects that uh, that ex- establish firm five S practices. The, the lean construction, I, I guess, I'd say out of our notebook, the lean construction notebook is those particular practices that apply in projects. We, all of the other things that you that you think of in lean, or I think of in lean, is you know fi- value stream mapping, five S. Uh, those kinds of tools are all used. Uh, value stream mapping is very much like what we do in pull planning when we're trying to design uh, a, a system of work to deliver a phase of the project. Uh, uh, we are like re- we we get a chance to design the factory about for every milestone. And so, um, value stream mapping is is very very. We learned a lot from that. Uh, we work from the from the end backwards, same kind of way. What the customer wants of that of that phase. Uh, so, but when I think of the lean construction world, I'm really thinking of those techniques and practices that developed in construction around um, initially, where those practices are going today is into design. And we're we're now beginning to have very significant set uh, success uh, in design by adopting a set based design and and target value design. Uh, both of those we certainly read about in the, in the more traditional uh, lean world. Uh, Michael Kennedy's book, Product Development for the Lean Enterprise, for right. example. Uh, also, you see now in the in the well developed com- companies, you see very uh, uh, developed use of A3, uh, uh, the A3 thinking in uh, the way they uh, organize and brief the key decisions that they have to make about choices they're going to make, certainly in design. And you also see that practice used as a regular improvement practice within the company. Um, so going back just a little bit, um, a couple minutes back you were talking about value stream mapping applied to construction project. You, when, when you look at that uh, you know, it sounds familiar. Starting with the customer, defining value, working your way back. Um, if you were drawing a map, do, do the major phases of the construction project get represented in that map? In terms of we're building this and then we're doing that, is it is it a linear flow like that? Or I'm, I'm just curious how that fits. Yeah, what happened? What ha- how we got there um, helps them maybe understand it. We we learned how to make workflow predictable. What we didn't know is that we were making the right work predictable. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and and so we, all projects have this big critical path schedule that they put together at the outset, and so the question and the and the problem was that schedule was never in a good enough condition to be an accurate predictor of the work that should be done in the next six weeks, or few weeks, and so we had to figure out a way to connect this planning system that worked. W- and really hook it to the objectives of the project. And so we invented something which was a, a phase planning. So we'd pick a milestone of the project, like maybe slab on grade or, or foundations complete. And we'd bring together the people that were going to deliver that milestone 
and that milestone would be something that we knew was necessary to complete the the project. So we're thinking there of the customer, and the project is the customer of this of this, and then we'd say, okay, well, what's the condition of the project going to be when we deliver that milestone? What's what what is particularly what would the next guy be willing to pay more for out of that so that we could get it done? And then we'd start at the end, and we understand a project is a network of commitments. That is, so if I'm the guy that's going to set the anchor bolts, or let's say the end of the phase is to begin to install the uh, structural steel. If I'm the guy beginning to install the steel and you're the guy who's doing the foundations, uh, I would say, uh, well, well, Mark, are, are, are you, you're, you're going to finish the foundations for me. What will be the conditions of the anchor bolts when you're, when we're, when you say you're done? What will be the precise condition of the project? Will the anchor bolts, uh, will the nuts be in a bag by the, by the foundation? What will, when you say, what does it mean when you say you're done? I'm making a request to you to prepare the foundations. You're going to make me a promise. Let's talk about the conditions of satisfaction when you'll hand that off to me. Yeah. Well, and, and that sounds like a, a familiar lean definition of value. What is the customer willing to pay for? Right. Well, and, and it's exactly what happens in all business transactions. Begins with a request or an offer, and we defined value. Value is defined in that conversational moment. And then one other thing, I'm curious to hear more about when you talk about pull planning. Can you describe that process and how that's different than traditional construction? Well, traditional construction is typically more a decomposition model where you take the project and you break it in pieces. We have very sophisticated planners who do that individually. We have highly developed software that lets us figure out when different things are going to happen because of the duration estimates and all of each one of the activities. What we, what we do in pull planning is we understand pull as a request. Okay. That, and so we bring together the, the supervision uh, that are actually going to manage the work during that phase. And we, we, we explain the milestone. We keep that critical path schedule in the other room. We don't want to, we don't, we want these guys to think this through on their own, uh, from the first and because that's the way you really get the creative juices going. And so people get there, they begin to plan, they work from the end backwards, they put their durations on it, uh, they argue, they fuss at one another, they step back, they rethink, they discover opportunities. Um, and, uh, and so what, another way to think about this, you can say we're designing the value stream for the, that phase, but we're also designing the production system that's going to deliver that. We're thinking about what are the logistics, who's going to deliver what when, and so it's highly collaborative uh, uh, thing. Let me say one more thing about it. During these meetings, we often found that one contractor, an example might be the mechanical contractor would say to the structural contractor, if you would weld the clevises on the steel, uh, it would save us a lot of time erecting our pipe. And the mechanical, the structural contractor would say, well, I, I could do that, but it would cost me a dollar. It's not in my contract, and I'm not going to do it. And the mechanical guy would say, well, it would save me $5. Are we crazy? Can't we figure this out? <laughs> and so this led us then to the integrated form of agreement contracts because we discovered that a huge obstacle to improvement is the ability to move money across boundaries. If you can't move money across boundaries, then you can't, and, and you have a contractual structure that contracts for each piece separately, then you, you're stuck. And, and so the really big improvements come because of the ability to move uh, money across boundaries. At, 
at that point we thought it, we were really crazy because now we'd given up on cost control, we'd given up on central authority, there's all kinds of stuff that we had set aside in the traditional way and had to come back to grips with those differently. Yeah. It's, it's been a great ride. Well, so I mean, it really does sound like there's a lot of familiar themes there in terms of defining customer value, breaking down silos across um, departments exactly and parts right. of the project, um, participative uh, management and engaging people. High, high, and, and developing people because they, they re- most of the people in the industry have, have not had that kind of experience. They have strong opinions, they have deep capabilities, but it takes a while for a group of people to learn to work together in that collaborative way. So what, what are um, some of the benefits, if you use some examples? I'm, I'm, I would suppose a lean construction project, a building built through this methodology would be on time, if not uh, early to its schedule, uh, under budget, um, have fewer change orders along the way, uh, have uh, however you would measure better quality and be a safer workplace for the for the crew. Uh, does that let's, sort let's, of capture let's start, it? Or? Let's start in, at the end and work backwards. We have strong data that shows that the that a typical project managed with lean protocols uh, will have one half or fewer than the number of accidents and injuries that we have on traditional projects. That's great. We, we, kill about, uh, we kill about four Americans every day in a construction accident. We kill 1,200 a year, something like that. And so cutting that in half is a, is a, great, is a great thing. Um, the, uh, you do see better quality. Well, we, build it, we, we talk about built-in quality because we, want, we don't want to inspect it in. We want it to be caught. When you say you're done and I say you're not, we'll fix that quality problem right here instead of me piling my work on top of it. Uh, as for cost and schedule, the, the, the application of these ideas, in a sense, creates new capacity in the organization, and sometimes you might want to invest that entirely in uh, uh, improve, reducing cost and, and not be so worried about time. Uh, it's pretty, we don't have, we don't have, I don't know of a project that has been managed on a lean basis that has been in any way significantly past due. Uh, the, uh, which is in contrast to something like 60% or 40% or some number like that of traditional practice. Uh, we have lots of projects where the, the, they're done on time and their uh, costs are reduced between 15 and 30%. Probably 15% is a more uh, conservative estimate. Uh, I saw a piece of research that hasn't been published yet with, uh, I think, 14 jobs that are were very carefully analyzed uh, against their performance against market values and all that, and they're running just a little over fifteen percent under budget. So I think that's a that's a that's a good number. Yeah. The the better news though is whatever the budget is, they get done on time and they get done to design quality, and you don't have to go back and you know all that. So no, those we, are... we don't know of any lawsuits on projects that have happened that way. Wow. Yeah, sure. and, and those are great results, and uh, I'm embarrassed I didn't start with safety as a first No, measure. no, it's all right. I, I just, I, uh, uh, you, I was with you to the end, and then you said it, and it reminded me, so it's great. Yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, I just, I just sort of had the old, um, you know, the mantra when people talk about faster, cheaper, better, right. pick two out of three. Right. Um, and it sounds like with lean construction, sort of like with lean healthcare or other settings, that you find a way of getting all three. And safety, I, I hate to say we take it for granted, but it's, I think it's just assumed that you focus on safety as, as an everyday priority. Well, uh, you know? I, yeah, I think that in construction, 
the way in which we dealt with labor before was fundamentally motivationist. That is, the problem when when I started in the industry, the problem was understood as worker motivation and training. And we really shifted from that motivationist view to a systems perspective of projects. And the same thing's happening now in safety. The the primary ways that safety's spoken about in the industry look, we're not a safety program. How is it that we don't change motivation and people aren't getting hurt? It's because the systems are actually running more predictably. I I think that makes sense. We can't. It's difficult to prove that, and we're trying to figure out how. But but where where I see this going is is to shift from a kind of motivationist view of safety and begin to look seriously at the approaches to safety that are used like in aviation. You wouldn't fly and neither would I if we use the same kind of safety approach in that aircraft that we do in, in construction. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, I think a, that's really a big shift for me and I guess maybe the industry too is a shift from this either focus on the individual or the contractor to the focus on the system that they're embedded in. That that and then to adopt the best of, of system design and management practices. Yeah. Well that that's great. And those are um it sounds like some very universal principles. Healthcare is trying to go through a similar transition of, of focusing less on oh well if, pa- if patient when, when patients are getting hurt because it's it's unfortunately far more than four a day who are being killed. It's not a matter of saying well why didn't that nurse or that doctor or why didn't they care or why weren't they careful. It, it, we're transitioning to more of a, a systems view. So it's interesting to hear that it's a similar um, battle in, in construction. So can I make give you a suggest? I, maybe you're reading. Are you reading Sidney Decker? No, no, I'm not familiar. Uh, Sidney Decker, uh, I'm I'm really stuck into his book called Drift into Failure, which is examines how failure occurs and really attacks the Cartesian and Newtonian approach in traditional safety management. Uh, he's written another great book, Ten Questions About Human Error, and another one is a Field Guide to Understanding Human Error. And and there these are powerful reconceptualizations of safety uh, that are really important. He's my guru on this, and I'm I'm trying to think through how to bring that into our our industry. Well, that's I appreciate the recommendation. I'll um, take a look at that, and maybe as a way of wrapping up, um, if, if you can talk a little bit about the Lean Construction Institute, um, t- talk about the organization, how people can find out more if they want to look you up. Sure, uh, the Lean Construction Institute's I think twelve, thirteen years old. Um, we were founded uh, uh, as a for-profit and became a not-for-profit organization, which we have been for a long time now. Um, we have an executive director. We're trying to reorganize our website. We're trying to cope with a huge increase in the demand uh, of infor- for information, seminars, and so forth. And But the, I think the most important uh, development has been in communities of practice, both in the United States and like local chapters around the world. Uh, We have them in a a significant number of countries now. These local chapters or communities of practice are places where uh, local leadership gets interested in this set of ideas. They get together a core group and they meet maybe once or one, most of them meet monthly, monthly, some bi-monthly. They have speakers. Uh, they talk about what they're learning, working together in the field. It's typically made up of a group of people who believe they have more to learn than to lose uh, by uh, getting together and eating a piece of chicken and, and uh, hearing what somebody else is doing and, and sharing experience. Lots of uh, new alignments and uh, uh, collaborative agreements are, are being developed out of that. We bring in suppliers, guys that make windows, uh, uh, suppliers, designers. It's, it's really meant to be a uh, these are 
good communities. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.